We have made it to Independence Day weekend. We've talked for months and months about whether this would be the line of demarcation to get out of the pandemic. Probably not quite. The Delta variant is raising numbers around parts of the country in pockets anyway. But it is Independence Day, and we're here to wrap up a week of news on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, who are raring to go because they want to get to that holiday weekend. I hope you all have big plans. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The weather is supposed to be beautiful. And you know okay. what? I'm making my family bi- bike across the Wendy Park Bridge. I feel like we've reported on it so much. I'm like, we're going. All right. I promise everybody who's listening that the energy level will rise. With the very first story <laughs> we're about to talk about, let's begin. How did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine take a shot at the defenders of the sunshine law with his line item vetoes in the budget? Jane Cahoon, we are big defenders of the sunshine law and public records and the First Amendment. So I'm stunned that Mike DeWine would be the evil guy in this scenario, trying to make it much harder for people to keep open meetings open. What's the story here? Yeah, you're not the only one who was stunned by this. I think he took a lot of people by surprise, but he vetoed this provision in the budget that would have made it easier for citizens and, frankly, for journalists like us to uh, by setting up a um, it, the, this provision would have set up a new process to challenge governments when they illegally meet behind closed doors in violation of the Sunshine Law. And that's Ohio's Open Meetings Act that requires local government officials to make decisions during public meetings that are advertised. So the, the process they were, were trying to create under this provision, um, and they were working with Republican auditor Keith Faber on this, it already exists for public records where you can go to the Court of Claims, the Ohio Court of Claims, with a complaint when, when a government refuses to release a public record. It makes it less expensive, less onerous, and you get a quicker answer. So Faber had pushed that through several years ago when he was a lawmaker and he was working with the Ohio News Media Association and others to to get this as a, a budget appropriation. It would have cost uh, $700,000 a year. So if a citizen won in the court of claims, they could get that determination. Yes, the Open Meetings Act was violated and they could then go to Common Pleas Court to, to seek to, to nullify any decision that was made illegally. So, but DeWine's take on this is uh, it's unnecessary. He said the the current system of, of using common police court for these types of claims is sufficient. And he said any moves to expand the court of claims should involve consulting the Ohio Supreme Court. And um, Dan Tierney, DeWine's spokesman, said, you know, it's a lot more complicated uh, to determine whether a government violated the Open Meetings Act uh, <laughs> than, than if the yeah. public records, you yeah. know, than if a particular public record should should be released. He said it's a much more intensive process and they think the appropriate venue is is uh, Common Police Court. I, so I wish you want to jump in here. <laughs> yeah, I wish we'd done that interview on Zoom to see if he could say that with a straight face, because it's just not true. What, what, what people don't know probably is that the the court of claims process for public records has been a godsend for journalists. It's very expensive to go to court to fight over public records. It can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And most newsrooms are challenged for resources these days. So when 
Ohio put together this system to you pay 25 bucks and you get a real hearing before a special master on records. It's been great because over and over again, people have used that system. Almost always government loses because they're trying to hide public records that they shouldn't hide. So this move to take this now to the sunshine where, where you're talking about open meetings is another way to, to help resource challenged people. No private citizen can afford to, to go to court to file. Right. A, I was just going to say, this isn't just yeah, for it's, journalists. It's, no, but it's, I mean, it, this was a great system. And what Mike DeWine is doing is helping governments be sleazy. And, and his, his statement that the current system is adequate, it's not. I can tell you it's not. I have to make these decisions on where we spend our money. And, and it's very expensive. We have to protect those resources so we can serve the community. I, I really, I think this is one of the more despicable acts that Mike DeWine has committed. He has stomped his foot on the public process to help people in government who want to hide behind closed doors. So I'll end this by saying Mike DeWine can take this veto and stick it where the sun don't shine. <laughs> <laughs> it's you this week in the CLE. <laughs> what did lobbyist Neil Clark, one of the defendants in Ohio's HB6 bribery and racketeering scandal, write in his self-published book shortly before he died? Laura Johnston, John Coniglia got the big scoop on this. He got a copy of the book. It's not available anywhere else. Uh, he had talked to Neil Clark a good bit before he died by suicide. What does the book say? What What are the, the interesting elements that Mr. Clark offers? Well, the book is loaded, so I definitely can't go into all of it. But Clark was not afraid to name names. And according to this book, he told the FBI no company has ever owned as many politicians as First Energy. So he was 67. This was his autobiogra autobiography. And he writes all about HB6. He wrote about a three-and-a-half-hour meeting with authorities on July 28, 2020. That was three days after his arrest on a federal racketeering charge. He wasn't even sure what he was charged with until he saw who else was involved. And he was like, oh, HB6. So apparently Clark and Larry Householder had had some kind of relationship in 2004. Then they hadn't talked for 13 years before he just called him up, woke him up from a nap in his recliner. And then uh, they started talking daily for months. Clark told in his book, he said he told Householder how federal law allowed contributors to pour money into political campaigns through nonprofits called dark money. So it's legal and it's no matter no matter how much you spend and you can't trace it. He just said, don't bribe someone and don't use a person for personal use, according to his book. He said he gave those instructions to householder. He was eventually paid $100,000 in August of 2019, a retainer for $15,000 a month after that. And he worked with these folks very closely for years, but he said he had no idea how the money from First Energy and its affiliate First Energy Solutions was handled. Jane Cahoon, we've been talking about HB6 and the racketeering trial forever. Rarely do we get insights like this from defendants in big cases long before they're resolved. Did you see anything in this that opened your eyes? You know, I I I have to say I'm I'm taking all this with a, a grain of salt because mm -hmm. it it was, you know, from somebody who was ensnared in this and was facing charges. And we it's hard to vet you know, what he's saying. He's, he's no longer with us. So, but, uh, 
I guess it didn't surprise me that that he would say that First Energy owned all these people because what have we been talking about for you know this massive bribery scheme and you know but um, it, it's it's for sure juicy you know some of the little tidbits he threw out he threw some shade on Mike Dewine and John mm-hmm. Houston you know for for welcoming dark money and you know. Yeah, I think dark money is the root of so much evil in the state and in the country. It's funny because, Jane, you kind of sound like a lot of the people that John Coniglia called for comment. You know, the attorneys representing a lot of the people named in the book, other politicians, they all said, we're not reading this book. You know, remember, this is a guy who lied. And why would you believe anything they said? Because they all look really bad. But (laughs) And he looks good in his own book. You know, he looks... uh, I was worried. I mean, we were talking. I was worried before I knew what was in it that if he had said something horrible about Mike DeWine, you know, if he accused Mike DeWine of of, of a crime or something that we hadn't seen anywhere, um, I I would have been troubled. using. I don't think we would have used it. I I think we would have fallen on the side of fairness that a guy who's been ensnared, as you said, Jane, um, who who died by suicide and wrote this book and left it. It's not really fair because how do you defend yourself against that? But it didn't have any of that. It was more his insights into what was going on and it, you know very favorable to him. Uh, but but pointing out some of the the bad behavior of others. It's uh, it's an interesting element that we don't usually get. Jane Coon, when are we going to see more indictments in this case? We keep hearing they're coming. Oh, yeah. I've been in touch every day with the U.S. attorney on this, Chris. He, he's keeping me apprised of every step now. How do I know when they're going to do it? Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If Akron can have a law requiring police to release body camera footage in any excessive force case involving injury or death, why can't Cleveland? Layla Tassi, Cleveland is really mixed in when they release it. If it makes them look good or justified, we get it right away. If it's shady, they don't release it forever and ever, and we have to fight to get it. Why? Why the difference? Akron is doing something much more progressive. So back in November, 89% of voters in Akron approved a charter change that requires the city's police department to release body camera footage to the public within seven days of an officer using deadly force or force that results in serious bodily injury. And that law took effect on June 30th. City leaders here in Cleveland say they had pushed for, for something similar, but city lawyers told them they couldn't do it. The footage is Certainly public record, even though police departments, like you said, have this broad discretion over when to release them. Uh, City Council passed a resolution in May urging the state lawmakers to amend the Ohio Public Records Act to force police to release the footage within 48 hours of review. So a city attorney researched the possibility of legislation in Cleveland and determined that state law deems that footage to be investigative material and that the state law would supersede any local laws. So that pretty much killed the effort in Cleveland. So council is hoping to submit a similar issue to Cleveland voters in the November 2nd general election. So they're they're trying to go the direction that Akron did, putting it right before the voters. But it's it's controversial because, you know, especially as far as the police union is concerned, in, in Akron, police made the argument that the camera footage shows the events from one vantage point, but not necessarily as the officer experienced it, the officer might have been looking in a different direction or was distracted. And so you're kind of only getting one experience of what occurred. Also, they they worry that releasing footage too soon could jeopardize investigations because witness accounts could be warped by what they saw in the footage that was released. 
Union officials in Cleveland say the footage is still there regardless of how many days it takes to release it. So, you know, what's the big deal if there's a delay? But that's about the most callous response I can imagine when you're talking about the families of people who might have been harmed or killed by police. They deserve to know what happened as soon as it's available. So, uh, you know, also, go ahead. I'm sorry. I got to tell you that line about how it's one vantage point. It's facing forward where the officer is facing. I mean, that is the officer's vantage point. If they Uh, turn their head, I mean, come on. If something is happening big to their left, they're going to turn to their left. That seems like one bogus argument. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weak one. But they got to, you know, grapple onto something. So so here's my question. But here's my question. We're a charter city. Cleveland is a charter city. So, yeah, you could you can go to the voters, put this on the charter and then the council cannot change it. But when you're a charter city, you get to pass laws. You get to you get to say what you want to happen. The city council, if it had the 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 spine to do it, could pass an ordinance that says we're releasing this in seven days. I, I, I don't understand this argument that it has to go to their charter. Akron did it because they had a charter review commission and they decided to make it that formal. But all these city council members that say they want to do it. Just do it then. What, I just don't buy this idea that they don't have the power. Well, yeah, I think maybe cowardice is the, is the right thing. They want to <laughs> put it in the hands of voters and say, well, if the voters uh, approve it, then, then you know, we'll, we'll move. I mean, yeah, they, they, it's, it's just a matter of, of courage here and, and standing up to the union and, and, and doing what's right. So, uh, I mean, this is, we'll see. We'll see if it makes it onto the ballot. That's, it'll, it'll be fascinating to watch this unfold. I mean, Akron's ordinance also says that if, if the city fails to comply with its obligation to release footage, the petitioner who brought forth the action shall be entitled to the same damages and attorney's fees set forth for a governmental entity's failure to comply with the Ohio Public Records Act. And that's where, like, I felt completely deflated <laughs> because, you know, Cleveland's law would fall apart right there. When, whenever is the city of Cleveland ever held responsible for failing to comply with the Ohio Public Records Act? I'm, I'm probably still waiting for records from the Jane Campbell administration. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's a good line. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's defense for not vetoing a measure that allows doctors to refuse to treat people based on religious beliefs? Does this put LGBTQ people at risk? Jane Coon, this one really is troubling because we've now put into law and sanctioned the ability for doctors to exercise hate. I just it's it. How did Mike DeWine defend standing behind this law? You know, it's interesting. He got pressed on this on Thursday at his uh, briefing on the budget by more than one reporter, because I think the first time he answered it, he he was pretty dismissive. He's just insists this is not a problem. I think he was I don't know whether I call him defensive, but he but he was certainly uh, dismissive. But as you said, this was a provision that allows a medical provider to deny care to people on the basis of moral, ethical or religious uh, beliefs. And, you know, another reason we were so interested in this is because, you know, we're not, you're not the only one troubled by this, but some really significant groups opposed it, including Ohio's major associations representing hospitals, doctors, health insurance providers, as well as LGBTQ rights groups. But anyway, DeWine basically said if 
a person is denied care, they can just find another provider. He said, in the real world, most of those rights are not only recognized and exercised by medical professionals, but they're being accepted by other medical professionals. This is the way the world generally works. This is just codifying this. This is not a problem. People are not going to be discriminated against. We have this vibrant medical system. We have great doctors, la, la, la. But um, so he, he tried to bring up you know, liken it to the issue of abortion, which is clearly a procedure that doctors choose whether or not they're they're going to perform. But I think what concerns opponents of this pr- provision is is they're more worried about people who might need routine or emergency care and could be denied, which obviously would jeopardize their their health. Um, now, Laura Hancock, who did this story, talked to a Christian conservative activist who said, you know, this provision really isn't about you know, that it's about procedures, not, not people. It's like, you know, you don't want to force somebody to prescribe puberty blocking drugs or to help somebody transition to the other gender. You know, he said it won't affect emergency care, but you know, I mean, I don't know. No, I think so let me it, ask it you talks this. about services, you know, why, why so. not then define it that way? Why not make it specific acts? Why not make it abortion or, gender changing surgery. I mean, the way this reads is that they can refuse. I I don't believe in your religious beliefs, so I'm not treating you. It does read like if you walk up to a doctor with your arm hanging off, that this doesn't really exempt them from not treating you, that the doctor would still have to, you know, sew your arm back on so you don't die. But but it just it seems like this sanctions. I mean, it's just is this who we are now? Is this is this what and if you look at the history of medicine, it's this do no harm. It's all about helping people. They take the Hippocratic oath, every one of them. And th- this flies in the face of it. Is this where we are in 2021, where we have government sanctioned hate? Yeah. And I, I think, honestly, we shouldn't leave this conversation without pointing out some of the politics um, at play here. The um, human rights campaign president, Alfonso David, uh, issued this statement. And and I think he was alluding to the fact that DeWine is facing a reelection challenge from his fellow Republicans who, you know, who are further to, to the right, and he's being attacked in that manner. So uh, anyway, David said, he, DeWine, uh, like what you said, he's enshrined LGBTQ discrimination into law. And he's going against medical best practice and recommendations to score cheap political points. So that's, you know, that's well, what he's I, doing. I, I also think there's some hypocrisy here because we all watched over the past 15 months as Mike or Mike DeWine stood in front of us day after day, week after week, talking about all he was doing to keep all Ohioans safe. But now we know it's not really all Ohioans. It's all Ohioans except maybe gay Ohioans or whatever else people might want to discriminate against. I mean, he held himself out as the hero of the people to keep them safe. And then he yeah. defended this bill. And there's a there's a separation there. I, I There's a conflict in those two messages that surprised me. I thought he would. I thought he would veto this when we talked about it earlier in the week. Yeah, if for no other reason than the concerns from some, you know, really heavy hitters and influential people in the, you know, medical community. Yeah, this was there there were a couple of disappointing things he did with this budget bill and other measures. And this was one of them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
What could he have been thinking? What are the details behind the longtime Sheffield Lake police chief who resigned this week? Laura Johnston, this is a jaw dropper because on top of everything else about it, this guy is a moron. Well, yeah, I mean, this is incredibly brazen, hard to fathom this could actually happen in this day and age, but it's right there on surveillance video inside the department's booking area. And it shows police chief Anthony Campo, who's been with the department for 33 years, served as chief for eight. He walked into a room with a piece of paper in his hand that says Ku Klux Klan, walked to a desk, put the note on a yellow jacket that was laid out to resemble that infamous hood and robe of the KKK. Then he waits for an African-American officer to come in the room. Like, he's just right there. And the mayor said the chief told him the offensive note was a prank, that he thought it was a joke. But the mayor was so upset, he couldn't even use the chief's name when he talked about it. He was just overwhelmed with how awful this was. And the the reason the mayor found out, the union filed a complaint with the law director. The law director brings it to the mayor. The mayor went to the chief, said, you have 10 minutes to get out of the office. And the chief said, okay, I'm going to quit instead. But it's just mind-boggling here's the thing i look i i I, it's so it's so offensive that i think the black officer been in the department for six months i can't imagine i can't imagine what that would be like to walk in to see that and then to find out your chief did it i mean it's just such an outrage but you just have to what what's the chief thinking given all that has gone on in this country how could he not think this would not go as badly as possible. Or is it just that the Sheffield Lake Police Department is so racist where nobody realizes that this is offensive? I, I can't, I just, this one boggles the mind. I just cannot understand how this happened. No, I, I don't either. And I would hate to think that that's how racist the department is, that it seemed like not a big deal. I mean, the way the mayor reacted doesn't make it sound like that. But, you know, he knew immediately why he was in trouble. It's like, were you trying to get fired? And this was the most offensive thing you could come up with. You're like, I know this is going to get me kicked out. I I don't know. I mean, but, the- you know, that's as good an explanation as anything else, because <laughs> I mean, you really you got to you got to think about what is this guy's IQ? I mean, this this is it's not just cruel and mean and and horrible for the whole department. It is idiotic in a way that that you just question anything he's ever done in his career. If he's this dumb, what else has he done? Because because no thoughtful person know, like 33 years in the department he made eighty seven thousand dollars a year and uh he's he's gone so and now the 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 officer has an attorney the um the black officer and so he might be suing the he might be suing the chief he might be suing the city i mean you definitely have a case that'll make him the chief that's what they should do replace yeah. the chief with him it's this week in the cle why is the opening of a Metro Health dental clinic in Cleveland's Ohio City neighborhood about the soul of a neighborhood as much as it is about dentistry? Leila Tassi, when you told me this was about to open, you were pretty excited because of the backstory of how it got there. Talk a little bit about that. I know. I love this story. Metro Health's new community-based dental clinic on, on West 38th and Fulton you know, it'll offer everything from routine checkups, cleanings, root canals, all the stuff. It's got on-site dental imaging, and it's super high-tech with this dental microscope and 3D printers and lasers to replace traditional drills and things. But what's really most remarkable remarkable about the opening of this facility, in my opinion, is that if it weren't for the tenacity and the grit of the Ohio City community members who fought to keep this property out of the clutches of the wrong people— 
it would be a McDonald's double drive through the bay. <laughs> <laughs> the, la- the last time this site was operational at all, it was a Hollywood video rental store. And that should tell you how long ago that was. Then for a brief moment in 2012, it almost became permanent supportive housing for some of Cleveland's chronically homeless population. But that plan was was, you know, supported by many in the neighborhood, but eventually was kind of torpedoed by NIMBYism. And then came this David and Goliath fight when McDonald's wanted to move in with a 4,200 square foot restaurant parking lot, double drive through that would empty onto West 38th Street. And the neighborhood was nearly unanimously opposed to this McDonald's. They went on a blitz, protesting on the street and turning out in droves for a three-hour hearing before the Cleveland Planning Commission to testify against it. And then the commission eventually ruled against McDonald's and the developer on the grounds that the plan violated zoning restrictions set in place to preserve the pedestrian-oriented character of the street the neighborhood, you know, they claimed a victory. But I remember the McDonald's legal team walking away from that really smugly. They they wouldn't be defeated so easily. You could tell that they were like, you know, no one says no to McDonald's, you know. <laughs> and they, <laughs> So they sued. And a common pleas judge actually ruled in McDonald's favor. But while the city was appealing that ruling, the deal mercifully fell apart between McDonald's and the developer. And that's when Metro Health swooped in and bought the property. And the neighborhood was pretty happy about that. I spoke to some of those Ohio City activists uh, for a column about this back in the fall of 2019. And they said that this was a project that they could finally get behind for this this sad site that had been abandoned all these years. This was bringing healthcare right into the heart of the community and meeting this very important need. They had defeated Goliath and prevailed in this battle over the soul of the neighborhood, as you said. So it's so nice to see this story come to its conclusion with the grand opening of this dental clinic this week. Yeah, it's. It, it, I, I thought McDonald's was going to win back then because oh, that's I, what yeah, usually everyone happens. Did. This is. Is a real victory for the residents and the salute to Metro Health for coming in and doing something good for the neighborhood, providing a service while keeping the uh, the, the the flavor of the neighborhood. Uh, good news to end the week. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How common are black bears in Northeast Ohio? Lauren Johnston, this story is a bit acute to us because one of our longtime reporters who retired a year or two ago. I was driving down the street in Hudson and saw one walking across the yards. So what is going on with the black bears in Northeast Ohio? Yeah, kudos to Karen Farkas. I mean, you're always working even when you're not working anymore. So we miss you. But uh, they actually, there's about 60 to 100 black bears in Ohio that live here. They're a lot more common in Southern Ontario, or sorry, Southern Ohio, but they do come up here sometimes if they're looking for food. They, this one bear that we've been talking about recently in Willoughby uh, is like a celebrity gained attention in Ashtabula near to Geneva, then migrated west to Painesville, then was spotted in Willoughby. So, I mean, the guys, it's like a young male bear who's getting around. Um, bear sightings generally increase during the summer because bears are foraging for food. They're in peak breeding season. And that might be why we're talking about them so much. But they're fairly passive animals. They're unlikely to be aggressive. They're just looking for food, water, shelter, and space. So if you see one, Take down your bird feeders for a few days, clean out your barbecue, secure your trash and um, any pet food. Make sure that's not outside. 
I don't know, Jane Cahoon. I still marvel <laughs> when we see deer in our neighborhood. I had a, I did a short story last week because we had the very rare appearance in Cleveland Heights of a doe with four fawns. It almost never happens. If we see bears, I'm going to be convinced we're all living in a computer simulation. <laughs> no, you're going to go get your camera. You're going to take pictures for an hour, and then you're going to be like, "I got a new post for Cleveland.com." Yeah, I just, I can't, I can't fathom bears in suburbia. That just throws me. I, I just, again, I, I know just, that that photo that Karen took was just <laughs> surreal. Right. I know it's it kind of looks like a dog. It's just like hanging out in front of some very suburban house. I know. It's. I mean, it's as rare to me as like seeing a tiger or an elephant in the neighborhood. It's just not something I expect. So, and you know, you do. You credit Karen Farkas for for jumping all over that and providing the photo that we needed. Uh, I. 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 <laughs> she was a machine. She's still a machine. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's end it there. Let's head off to the weekend. Let's head off to the the 4th of July. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Hope everybody who listens to this enjoys the holiday. We will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.